Hello and welcome to the SIPS Queensland podcast where we interview Queensland professionals to get an insight to their careers, their highs, their lows, their wisdom and their advice. So let's check out today's podcast guest. So welcome back to the Queensland SIPS podcast. Today I have a very special guest with me and this is my fearless leader, (laughs) Tom Dunn from um, AOCO, currently my boss, so I've got to be extra nice in this interview today, don't I, Tom? Absolutely. I know she needed that introduction to be at least 50% better next time around, okay? (laughs) Fearless is good, but I didn't hear the word benevolent or inspired or anything like that, so next time we'll get Uh, it right. Scratch that and start again then. (laughs) (laughs) So this one, I'm sure everyone is going to be giggling and get so much insight from it all. Um, Tom and I have known each other, what, for maybe five years now. Yeah. Uh, We met at Hastings Steering. So Tom came in at Head of Procurement at Hastings. He guided me. He pushed me. He challenged me. He poked me. um, And then he deserted me (laughs) and (laughs) left um, to AOCO. And then approximately, what, 18 months later, I again. There we go. We're like a package deal. (laughs) So firstly, I do want to say welcome. And I love that I'm on the opposite side of the table because it's usually Tom (laughs) asking me questions (laughs) and pushing me. So I love that I get to do this back to him. So it's a bit of a calmer process right now. Yeah, (laughs) it's going to be quite... Quite uncomfortable for me by the sense of things. If, if everything has to balance in the world, yeah, this is going to be very awkward. All those years of you pushing me and us going through scripts and all these questions and stuff and interviews, it's come back to bite you. <laughs> but first things first with um, everyone that may not already know you, with your career, you've had a lot of sort of industries and everything that you've gone through, starting off in defence, now you're in agriculture, you've been in mining, you've been in sort of governments like Australia Post and stuff like that. So the big question that everyone always asks, did you choose procurement or did you fall into it? So so I, ch- I effectively chose procurement. I'm prepared to say that I chose procurement and I'll tell you the story of how I got into procurement. Um when I was, I would, I had barely turned 22, um, and it was back in the second rotation into into the Middle East as part of the Coalition of the Willing back in 2003. So, really early on in the Second Gulf War. Um, to give you an idea of it, you know, one of the real highlights of that tour was when when we were holding Saddam Hussein on base as as a, as a um, captive. Like that's that's how far back we're talking. So th- there may be people. Um, who, who were not reading or writing at this stage when, when that happened. And, and as part of that coalition of the willing, um, we had to establish supply chains for, for our local forces, um, our, you know, both Australian and allied. Um, and we had to, the, the, the best supply chain to go through is, is the local supply chain first and foremost. Now, the problem you get is um, Al-Qaeda was infiltrating our supply chain. Um, because when you go into a supply chain, you, from a from a logistics intelligence perspective, if you can figure out size, location, and capability, you've got a lot that you can now map that that opposing force from. And and purchasing patterns will tell you all of that. You know, if you're buying eighty phones and eighty pair of boots, it's a good chance there's eighty people there. So um, 
we would have we would have to routinely go out with cover stories and we would have to go out and, and report back what we were doing and what we were finding from the supply chain through group operational special investigations who were part of the US Air Force who who fed into the NSA and you, there was a lot of NSA presence there too. Um, so it was all very it was all very sexy in the sense that we were setting up um, we were setting up a war effort to win for the good guys. We had cover stories. We were you know using counterintelligence techniques. We routinely went out with close personal protections. We were operating in areas and countries we weren't really meant to be. Well, sorry, well, I won't say that too loud. Um, and so that's what I thought procurement was. <laughs> James Bond. Yeah, just, just run around making stuff up and giving dummy orders and all this, and then reporting back to the NSA. Um, and so then what I did was, I did my master's, to, so I did my bachelor's and my master's at UNSW, but my master's, I focused in on logistics and I pretty much majored in procurement because I had such a love of what it was and so much of my papers were, were, were written on my experiences um, in the Middle East trying to set up those types of supply chains and, and procurement processes under those conditions. Um, and, I, you know, I think my lecturers got quite a little kick out of seeing that type of process under a different light um, and then so from there um, my very first job was to go to bhp and i was applying for procurement jobs because that's what i do I, I actually never did procurement in defense and i think that's one of my great strengths because if i had done procurement and defense i would have become very regimented whereas i was always thinking back to back in 03 where things were you know um dynamic and and you know and and you could you could move and shake and you just had to get the objective settled and, and that's what procurement was it was about you know contributing to a war effort and and so that's what i think i've always taken into my career is that you know the question i'll always ask my procurement teams is what do we bring to the fight you know are we actually bringing something to the fight here or are we solving our own problems because if we are then we need to figure out something else because that's not how this is meant to work so Thankfully, I, I went to BHP for procurement and they did this really big barrage of testing because the consultant or the head of commercial there was ex Ernst & Young and I went in for a specialist role, but thankfully, because of all the testing, I was actually offered the superintendent role. So straight from the bat, I was, um, I was in leadership roles in procurement. Um, yeah, so I pretty much, I, well, look, I, I feel like I chose procurement. I always took leadership roles um, within procurement and, yeah, just loved, loved it since. Well, you've made procurement sound super sexy. With all <laughs> so if there's new people listening, procurement is not that sexy. It is not <laughs> was it James? Was it, what is his name? Jason Bourne, that's Jason it? Bourne. Yeah, I think I told you this. Well, I was doing that like six months before that Jason Bourne movie came out, and we had to we had to pick our cover names. And I would have called myself Mr. Jason. There's no way I wouldn't have called myself Mr. Jason. I would have thought I was so clever. And that's how you would have been found out. <laughs> <laughs> you can't all be Mr. Jason. <laughs> I, I think that's so funny. And then, so you've gone from all that. You've got into BHP, which is mining and resources, and then how did you end up at Australia Post? Um, when I, 
um, effectively what it came down to, it was a family thing. So we began to have more children. Um, and my wife, you know, we, we ended up having, I think, sort of three kids under four at one point. Um, so my wife just sort of said, we, we need to move back to Brisbane where I've got family support. Uh, and so from there, the, a role came up for the effectively like the, the state procurement supply chain manager. Um, and then and then that's that's kind of where I um, went for that role. Because uh, you have a great story with that. And I remember that was one of your first stories when you joined Hastings Deering is about really uplifting teams and stuff like that. Um, and you taught me a lot around leadership. There's going to be leaders that come into your life that will give it are a lesson or a blessing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you were such a blessing, Tom. I'll just add that to the recording right now since I stuffed up your intro. <laughs> but you, you had a great story about building up that capability and turning your Australia Post uh, team into an award-winning team. So take us through that. How did you do that? Go in there and then build that up. Yeah, so the, the Australia Post team were, were, was an interesting one. When I came in, First of all, the guy I replaced had done 49 years in the organisation. And before we get started on the team, that taught me something because two weeks after I finished there, I never heard his name said again. Okay. So it's, it's, you know, no, I've always taught you this. You give your loyalty to people, never to organisations because organisations don't have a collective conscience. You have to find the people in your life you're prepared to be loyal to and then stick it out with them and reward that loyalty and demonstrate that loyalty because that's, that's the human connection that makes us. And really, you know, as you sort of say, we're, we're a winning team because I think as good leaders, you've got to create those people in your life that you constantly connect with and you become more than just a leader. You become a capability because you bring people with you who actually want to create something spectacular. And there's people in that Australia Post world that I've reached back to because they are good people. But if we look at that team by itself, it was – you know, there was about 14 of them managing, I'm going to say, $300 million worth of spend, which is very well manned. The average time in seat, okay, so not time in company, time in seat was 11 years. They had been doing the same job in the same seat, in the same portfolio, in the same profile for 11 years. And what had happened was they had convinced themselves that um, what they were doing was quite good. And so every year that they, they would go up um, and spend between 16 to 20%. And they would say, oh, but, you know, parcels are going up, um, the cost of living is going up, inflation is going up. And they created this thing called the, the reasonably assessed price or the wrap. And that was their should cost analysis. And they would base it off that. So they would tell themselves that they're, you know, generating a 3% benefit every year. But in, re in real cost terms, they were going up by 16 to 20%. So... The first thing you've got to do as a leader is to go in there and trawl through the numbers because the numbers won't lie. And then from there, you go and talk to the people and you get their ideas. And, and basically, what I said to them is, I remember I said to them, I said, guys, within two years, I'm going to make us an award-winning team because there's such an opportunity here. I'm going to, I'm going to make us a team that genuinely reduces costs because, yes, parcels are going up, but letters are dramatically declining and, and, and you've got all these contracts that are very small and, and are not taking full, full um, capture of the efficiencies of fleet. 
So if you've got one, two men vans doing little parcels and they're only making 30 grand a year, no, 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 within that fleet, you're going to have about 10 decent leaders out of a, you know, a, a thousand. Give those 10 decent leaders the ability to run their own fleets and then watch the um, you know, uh, efficiency dividends come through. Um, and I remember I said to them, I'm going to turn this into a, an award-winning team of the two years, and they all laughed at me. And they said, mate, you don't get this. This is Australia Post. You know, we're, we're, we're procurement. We're a back-end service. This is what we do. And I said, we are a back-end service, and you, we will never forget that. We are here to serve operations. But we have the ability to configure the contractor fleet, which effectively makes us a big part of operations. So in the first year, I think we saved about 12%. So we went instead of going instead of going up twenty percent, we went backwards by twelve percent. The year after that, we went backwards by fifteen percent. We back sixteen percent. Now, what's really important in all that is that our hourly rate stayed the highest in the country. So the people who worked for us were making the most out of anywhere. And then, so what happened was the other states started to copy our areas, and then our Queensland team was given the responsibility to do all of the integration of the supply chain between Star Trek and Australia Post on the Eastern Coast. So it's huge, you know, and that's, and this is the big thing that procurement people, I think sometimes forget, is you've got to think of yourself like a small business owner or like a consultant. You've got to sell work into the business. And people always talk about how do you get a seat at the table? The answer is you make yourself so invaluable such a shock caller, such a, no, I won't say rock star, but such an influencer for positivity. There is no other option. You know, like we used to have the heads of operations would say, we are not going to make this decision until procurement is sitting at the table and they tell us that it's viable. That wasn't us pushing ourselves on. That was them pulling us on. But that's just because we made a bold move by understanding the nature of their operations and how to make it better. And we knew everyone was under pressure to reduce costs as the nature of the network configured and we made every operational leader look like a rock star and then that's how they brought us in and i remember and i am this petty because they won the award 14 months in and i brought them all back to the same room and i said remember 14 months ago when i said i was going to turn you guys into an award-winning team and this was the the day after that they all got flown down to melbourne to receive their award um it was the first time most of them had left the office and the very next day that we all came in, I said, I said remember when I told you it was going to be the award-winning team? I said, yes, I am that petty. I am going to remind you <laughs> that we had a vision and we achieved it. Now, and then the, one of them turned to me and said, that's great. They said, that's great because now we can kind of rest on this for two years. And I went, oh, no, no, no. We're going to do the whole thing again, but this time we're going to do the Eastern Seaboard between us and another company. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what you learn about Tom Dunn. Once you think you've got somewhere, he's like, oh, next level. Do it again. Just take over. And you, I think you touch on something really important because you did this when you came into Hastings Steering as well. We were in a big transformational consulting process, which was all about ripping costs out of the business. And I was assigned what I call the stitch-up project, knowing nothing about procurement. They gave me this Blackwood MRO thing, and you went, you're going to do it, Ashley. We'll, we'll make it work kind of thing. But that was the first project ever, I think, in procurement and within that company where we didn't just focus on cost. We actually sold it out to the business with PQVC, which is people, quality, velocity, and then costs will come off the end. 
So can you take us through to some of that? Like how did you sell that to the business when procurement is known to be the toe cutters, as you always say, just cost? How did you sell that up to the executives to go, no, let's focus on the people, the quality and the velocity with this? So it's it's a bit like the Australian Post thing where you go, look, we understand you're motivated by reduction of cost. Operational managers, we know that you're motivated by demonstrating that you will do the Lean Six Sigma PQVC. We'll start talking your language. Mm -hmm. So let me tell you about how people are going to be better and, you know, quality is going to be better and velocity, how we're going to create accountability and all the rest of it. And I think between you and I, you've got to sell it again. Sorry, Dan Ash, you're brand new to procurement. There's a team of like 10 people, I won't say what big mining company, have been working on this job for the last 10 years. If we do this, this is this is unheard of. People, everyone runs at this. I've run at this before but from, from previous companies. We never get it done, you know, and, and, and that's also how we sold them to the executives, you know, to the chief operating officer and MD. We sort of said, we know that your big customers are trying to solve this problem. If we solve it, we can hand the answer over to them and they actually might start listening to you as having credibility in the operational efficiency Lean Six Sigma thing. And then, you know, but the the big part that was really important with Blackwoods was that executive vice president, who we won't mention, um, and he basically came in. We sold it to him well enough at a, you know, business, you know, commercial sense, and he basically said, thou shall. So... That was huge, and that's where a lot of a lot of procurement people come unstuck. They believe that they can present ideas instead of selling them. Um, it's you've always got to ask the what's in it for them. And I think it's one of the great things the the military taught me is that you know going to some of the, the the worst places or some of the places where there was the greatest issues with with famine and security issues and economics instability and all the rest of it you realize that the you know the law of self-interest reigns supreme it doesn't matter if it's first world or third world people are always looking to sort of survive and thrive um so if you talk to that at, at each individual level mr executive we're going to make it easy to talk to your to your premier customers mr finance person we're going to save you a ton of money Mr. Operations Man, we're going to make it uh, more efficient for you and greater accountability on those vendors who you telling us are not playing the game, and and then all the you know and Mr. Mr. You know Maintenance Manager, this these issues you have with quality, these issues will now go because we can guarantee you a 98 percent, um, you know, or a defect rate of two percent, and then so all of a sudden people come on board, but then you need good people like Ashley Turner who. You can see there's a fire in their belly and they've got something to prove and they're intelligent and they've got good fundamentals. And then realistically, as a leader, you've got to set them up and then you give them a lane and it's your job to push anyone who tries to step into their lane off and you let them run as fast as they can with their head down so they can bust through any wall that comes along. And then and then you just constantly enable and you never just leave them there to say, well, set and forget. Because a project of that complexity, which has never been achieved before, it's going to come across problems you haven't considered in your pre-planning. So you've got to be there to help with the crisis management. Uh, and you've, you've got to have a little bit of bravery too, because those are hard projects. And you're going to go to bed maybe three nights out of the month where you're, you're staying up and you can't wrap your head around your problem. But at the end of the 12 months when you've done it and, and, and you put someone forward 
for an award that they really deserved and they won, you go, right, I don't remember the sleepless nights, but I do remember seeing you walk up onto that stage in Melbourne and I do remember going, job done. Oh, there you go. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Stitch up to an award. <laughs> and I will note that Tom and the Blackwoods team that were there were saying, you only got this because we're not under 30. So we made a big joke about it as well because it was definitely a huge team effort. And there was, I think there's two things that you mentioned that I mentioned in my podcast um, episode as well was around um, giving, trusting me, someone that had never been in procurement but you went, look, she's not got the technical skills yet, but she's got all the soft skills. She's got all the relationships. She's very organized, structured. She's like the Terminator. She'll go, go, go. And you trusted that. And I said in my podcast episode, you gave me a sand pit. It went, this is your sand pit, Ashley. You're not only responsible, but you're accountable for this as well. Like you put all ownership on me. And that really made me have to not hide behind you, if that made sense, which I think sometimes I hear from the procurement industry that they're a little bit too protected by their leader so they can hide away. But that was like spotlight, this is you, if it you know, sinks or swims, Ash, I've got your back, but this is on you. And I think that was one of um, the great leadership skills. You didn't micromanage, you just went, give me regular updates. If something's blowing up, let me know. I'll go jump on the grenade kind of thing. And we did really work well together with that, I think. Oh, and this is why I brought you over to AAKO too, because I think you can teach skills, but you can't teach values. So your mm-hmm. values are very much around hard work, about pride, um, about wanting to prove, you know, something about um, hard work, determination, about understanding that people are in it. I, I can have someone for 30 years in a procurement. If they don't have those skills, I'll get nowhere with them. You know, you, you, if I look at my career, you know, my, my military career, when we were from sort of sorting out, um, you know, spare parts for a C-130 to delivering medicine to bloody people suffering leprosy all the way through to figuring out mining issues. Now, now to figuring out how, how do we get more phosphorus into the diet of cows? And how do we figure out profit margins in in America? You know, if, if consultants will teach us nothing, is that if you just apply yourself and set yourself to a task and, and you dedicate your intellect to it, there's actually nothing you can't achieve. You just need to be focused and dedicated. And that's what you have, focus and dedication and structure and, and a belief. And that's what it all comes down to. The, the nine times out of ten, it's us that talks ourselves out of our out of doing what we need to do if you've just got that belief where you go hang on i i've come up against this challenge maybe not in this particular guys but i have come against this challenge and i've won i've won like 15 times already so this is going to be victory number 16. we Mm. just need to really work at it as hard as we can Mm. no i think it's key and with that particular project there's i guess halfway through we pivoted in the sense of as you said we had um executive support that went you shall do this and you will do this kind of thing, which ultimately was the huge success in the first 12 months, being told by fully support from the executives that you will do this, everyone. Then we got past, I guess, year one, and that sort of wore off a little bit, and then we had to shift completely to collaboration into our phase two and stuff like that. Um, So what are your thoughts around 
changing like that because when you hear most days everyone says everything has to be collaborative everyone has to have a say but for that particular project our success really came from that first you shall do this and you will do this sort of today so what are your thoughts around that stuff yeah so that you know this is i say with change management you need top down and then bottom up swell as well so the top-down support will allow you to set up the structures, but it won't mean that they necessarily feed into them. So, and I think if you remember, one of the things we did was we started to look at that collaboration and that PQVC in a wider in a wider remit. So we started looking at, you know, if you looked at something like Hastings Deering, they outsource they outsource a lot of their core duties because they have to because of the ebbs and tides of the mining boot. You can't afford to have a base. Um, employment structure that is accounting for boom times. It has to account for the for the bottom. So when you go up, you've got to do a lot of outsourcing so you can scale down pretty quickly. And so what we started to look at with these external um, engineering houses was how do we how do we do collaborative planning? How do we speed up the workshop responses? Because a lot of the time, the guys in the workshop have a key vendor outside who has been an integral part of their value chain, but they haven't laid eyes on them and they've been working with them for 20 years. So we started to do that as a concurrent activity to effectively speed up the workshops. So there was no cost benefit associated to any of that. It was about speeding up the workshops. Now, what that did to the Blackwoods project was it created an overall, and this is, you know, this was our remit now, was that we were a collaborative um procurement function that did something that a lot of procurement functions don't do well enough and that is solve the problem of your stakeholders we like to create our own problems and then our own solutions through our own processes we've become a self-licking ice cream you know and then and then as a result because we were getting wins over here in the engineering it picked up with the blackwoods so they're sort of sitting there going no no, no. if procurement have sped it up over here on this area then this is part of their remit they, they have a good plan. And that's a lot of what we have at AACO is you and I run at projects where I think our executives and our operations team don't know every intricacy of our plan, but that's okay because they trust us. Yeah. And they trust that we're working for the betterment of it. And because we've delivered on results by making their lives better and more efficient and safer and all the rest of it, it's made life very easy to, to sell more work into the company because they're like, you know, I was just chatting to the COO then. And we're about to present to the MD CFO next week on another major optimization project. And we're playing with, as you know, very high risk assets with high spin, very high spin. But we know that they're going to say, well, they're probably going to say yes, because we have runs on the board and we've created the right reputation based on results. Mm. Yeah. I think it's a really key point to what you hear around, I guess, ego in your leadership as well. Once you remove your own ego and self-righteous, like I'm here to make myself look like a rock star and you put it on the stations or your stakeholders to go, no, I'm here to serve you to make you look like a rock star. That's how you get by it and that's how you make stuff sustainable because you taught me very early on there's no point changing anything if it's not going to be sustainable because you've literally just wasted years of your time and effort trying to get it up. Yeah. And not only that, but you've wasted the opportunity in those years to create a legitimate legacy. Yeah. You know? So when you created that that win at BA, uh, sorry, Hastings Deering, that's like, okay, so what did you achieve there? Clearly something. When we look back on AACO and we look at some of the, the big projects, White Horse, Yellow, Blue Fat, 
these are projects we can hang our hat on. We're not going to waste our time um, creating and solving our own problems through our own methodologies because we're going to know in our heart of hearts we didn't actually solve it. And I think, you know, I think sometimes you say that I don't have much of an ego. I think I do. Um, but that's probably a good thing because I think it's when you think when you think you 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 know you you don't have an ego. Like the people I've met who have the worst egos will tell me they don't have an ego, and they'll actually try to force that down on me. So I think we've got to be aware of our egos in order to keep them in check. But I remember being a patrol commander overseas, and we needed resupply. And you know, it was my time to 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 switch from being a support service to being in operations. And I remember we desperately needed this resupply and I was looking at the horizon for the helicopter to come over the horizon and it never came. And it was such a pivotal moment in my career. I can still call up looking at that horizon, waiting for that helicopter to come and it never came. And I said to my, I, when I go back to being in supply, I am not going to leave that horizon empty. There will be a helicopter. Um, and so a big part of me is always directed to go in there and fix operational problems. Now, here's the interesting part though. To solve operational problems, you can't be, and this is just the way I think it, you can't be an operations lover. You can't be completely submissive and all the rest of it, because you see people do that. And you have to challenge them, and no different than you challenge each other. You know, we were having this discussion, you know, only a couple of days ago with trucks. We kept on saying, I know they think they know the answer, but a part of our job is to show them how good the answer could be. Yeah. by collaborating with industry experts, by talking to the right people in the business, by coming up with models, which we sell it into, and then we show them how great the world can be. But if all you do is sit there and collaborate the answers and you come out with the, you know, supply solution, well, all you've done is just made any sort of inefficiency within the process more efficient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that really ties into what I call Tom Dunn's most famous quote, which is getting past the point of PowerPoint. Yeah. yeah. That was, that's going to be on Tom's grave right there. That was always what his message because that was a big problem that you've seen throughout your career and in areas of, the business, of any business is we're very good at building up this big idea, putting on a big piece of paper, showing it all, but not following through with it and not implementing and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, procurement are the greatest purveyors of wonderful PowerPoint presentations. <laughs> um, we are phenomenal at it. Um, and it, it actually gets to a point too, you, 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 know, you go on up and up businesses where you actually turn around to um, procurement people and you say, you know, the second, the second worst thing they want to hear is, no, you can't do it. But the thing they fear the most is when you turn around and say, right, good, now deliver. And all of a sudden, you actually see them. Like, they actually don't know how to turn the PowerPoint into a, a tactical plan. Mm. They actually don't know how to do it. Um, and so and if, if people don't believe me, you know, there, there's an expression in procurement that says being McKinsey. And if you've been McKinsey, that means a consultancy firm has come in, presented a whole bunch of wonderful PowerPoint presentations to the executives and said, this is how good it could be. And if you guys can't do it, it's because you're not very clever. And then they hand the procurement team the plans and the procurement team go, you can't do that. That's impossible. So if you don't believe that we're not great at creating inoperable plans, then please 
refer to them being McKinsey. But sometimes we McKinsey ourselves and we go, right, this is how brilliant it's going to be. And then, you know, we either don't have the credibility to, to, to get the green light and it just rotates around, which is what creates that capability gap because you then you create this generation or at least this tranche of procurement people who can't actually execute because they've never been asked to execute. Or worst of all, they actually get told to execute and they execute so poorly we go back into that circle again. Where all procurement does is just generate business ideas and business plans and say they're hamstrung by the business mm. who won't give them a seat at the table. We use that expression all the time. Won't give us a seat at the table. Mate, if you have a good enough plan and a good enough reputation, you will get a seat at the table. And if you find yourself in a business where the reputation is so bad that no matter how good your ideas and how good your results were, that you still can't get a seat at the table, it's time to leave that company. Mm -hmm. Find a company that is prepared to list it and don't waste that opportunity to build that credibility based on good plans and good results. So, yes, get past the point of PowerPoint because otherwise we just go back to that cycle and it is soul-shattering stuff mm -hmm. to know that that's all you do in life. Yeah. And that links in with our, my sort of next question, one of my final questions for you is around building the right teams, like the right number of team, the right people, all that sort of stuff. So how has your opinion changed over these years? Because you've been in teams that have a huge and then you've been in ones like we've got now, which is like less than four, and we all have different sort of, you know, spots. How have you learned to pick the right people and have the right number in your team? So the first, I'll say two points to this. One is values and the other is deselection. Um, the first thing I'll say is you need to recruit people based on values. Um, I know that I could get to a technical ability to lead a, a billion dollar spend in my first job within six months. Procurement is not that complicated. You, you know, you came in um, from a non-procurement background and solved one of our greatest riddles within 12 months because procurement is not that complicated. You just need good people with, with good values. And, and because it's not complicated, this is why we get so many people falling into us. And because values-based in regards to having perseverance, resilience, insight, collaboration, team, because these are so hard, that's why so many people fall out. So the average stint in procurement, I think the last time I read was only like three years. Um, and that's why it's hard to keep good talent. And sometimes the people are hanging around and hanging around for the wrong reasons. So number one, recruit for values. The second thing I'll say is, and, you know, you, you got better to roll the dice with someone with no procurement background but that has good values than to get someone with a whole bunch of technical expertise who you know is stuck in their ways because we have to get more commercial as a procurement function to get that seat at the table. And that's that's how we've always done it. And, you know, in previous tank, we get commercial. We get close to operations to the point where we're so involved with them, they they want us to sit at the table because they feel that they can't not have that meeting without us. The second thing I'll say is deselection. So within that team, it's not about what you do, it's about what you don't do, okay? So you remember we did that planning session this year with AACO. You know, and, and what we did was, we limit it down to lines of operations. And there's only three lines of operations that we go down. One is the aviation, which we have to manage because we own the fleet now. Two is large project 
planning. And the third is large project implementation. So if it's not in one of those three categories, we don't do it. And then we set up decisive events or outcomes within those lines of operations to say that we're doing it. What procurement teams sometimes love to do is live in the world of post-contract execution because there's all kinds of fiddling and busy work you can do in that. Now, you've got to do it because you'll, you'll have value loss or value leakage in there. But if you want to sit around, you know, a bit like that Australia Post team that says, great, we can rest on our laurels for two years. You go, no, 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 no. You've got to sell stuff in. So one of the big things you've got to do is deselect all the stuff that is not contributing any value. And you've got to realize that the commercial enterprise is commercial enterprise in the macro and the micro. So with, you know, your business needs to survive by demonstrating it has something to the to the consumer world that they want and want to engage. And within that micro world, which is where we live within the business, we need to sell stuff into them where they go, we can't operate without you. Now, you can only do that by doing, say, six or seven big plays a year. The whole idea of deer of doing 40 little nonsense jobs a month and then turning around at the end of the year saying, but I did 500 little jobs. No one cares. Mm-hmm. No one cares. And we need to get our heads around that as a procurement function to say, you know, like we were talking about with our careers. We look back and we say, what were the flagship events of that career? When you can hang your hat on it, not just, you know, with what you want people to buy, but your own sense of self-credibility and say, we actually did that, then people will bring you back and back and back. Because CEOs in particular, they've got short attention spans. Do you know how I know that we've got traction? This is one of my pivotal moments. you know how I know we as a a team have traction within our company? How? Because I asked the CMO what it is procurement did, and she rattled off all of our major projects within three seconds. Um, So if the CMO, who is at the complete opposite end of where we live, if she can tell us the major projects we're working on, we've clearly done our job well. Um, And that's because we have big power plays and we don't keep ourselves busy with nuance, nuisance bloody uh, governance and constant management. Yeah. My final two questions for you. So the first (laughs) one, like two in one, basically. What's the best and worst advice you've got throughout your career? Uh, Best advice, probably a few things. Um, Number one, figure out where the light switches are before you move the furniture. Um, And that's basically your way of saying appreciate why operations have set this up before you start moving stuff around. Because if you understand why they've set it up the way they've set it up, you can figure out how to make it more efficient. The second is give your loyalty to people, never to organisations. Companies will drop you in a heartbeat um, once your boss goes or people leave. So you just need to appreciate that. Um, the third, I think, is probably to be careful, you know, understand whose counsel you take um, because there are good advisors and there are bad advisors and, and there are advisors who will be good at certain times of your life and certain times that won't be. Eventually, one day, Ash, you will outgrow me. You know, and you'll have to realise that and you'll have to sort of leapfrog and move past them. And that's fine. That's what I have to appreciate as a leader. And if that happens, when it happens, that will be me saying another job done. You know, well done. Worst advice I've ever had? I just, I don't know. I, I tend to ignore it. Like <laughs> 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 Yeah. Um, I don't know. What's the worst bit of advice you can give someone? Oh, 
you know, I guess the worst bit of advice you can have, you can give someone is, you know, um, get your years up, get get um, get your time up. You know, that sort of hey, the passage of right is is not the accumulation of your achievements. It's accumulation of how long you've sat in a seat. That is stupid advice. And if you get that in a company, either the company has a distorted culture or your leader has a distorted culture, and you need to consider the last bit of advice I gave you, which is whose who's counsel will you take? And my last question for you, for all the young professionals out there listening, is what's one piece of advice from Tom Dunn today, if you had to go back in time before you started your sort of procurement journey, what advice would you give yourself or to these young professionals starting in procurement? Back yourself. Back yourself. Be daring and back yourself. Yeah. Um, and I, I probably don't do that enough. I think we're doing it quite well in this role. Um, you know, I always say that there's, there's two tests for a leader. As a leader, you have to sit back and you have to ask yourself two questions every now and again. Is my leadership selfless and is my leadership fearless? Because if it's selfless, then you're truly trying to make things better for those around you. And if it's fearless, then you're leaning into it. I haven't succeeded in those two challenges. I think in our last role, I, I didn't have any problems answering the question on selfless, but I did have problems answering the question on fearless. I allowed too many obstacles to come in. And eventually I got to the point where I went, this is the wrong company for me. And I think we've found a company now, we were talking about it just yesterday, where we've got such a great entrepreneurial, commercial, get in there, solve our problems. It's a small business mentality of we just need great people doing great things. And so you and I have a particular talent to back ourselves. Mm. Um, and that's why I think you know, we have such high levels of job satisfaction. Um, it's not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than anywhere I've ever started to work. So, yeah, back yourself. And if you're in a position where you can't back yourself, find an environment where you can. And that may not be working for, for someone else. That might be working for yourself. That might not be working for the big blue chip companies. That might be working for a smaller company. That might not be working with the company that you can drop the name of that company at a, at a pub and get a certain set of regard. It might be a startup. But if you go into that area and you can back yourself and create those flagship elements of your career, it doesn't matter where you end up in regards to title or money, in your own sense of self-worth, you'll go, that was good for me. There you go. Tom's dumb wisdom for the day. There you go. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. I know you're flat out because we've got meetings left, right and centre today. But honestly, thank you so much. And I hope everyone listening has enjoyed uh, Tom's life journey throughout procurement and the wisdom he has accumulated along the way. You're going to, just so we're clear, you can't take time off next week to try and edit that nonsense down to 30 minutes of plausible information. <laughs> You're going to have to do that in your own time. And that's going to take at least two days. I know. He's such a great leader, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Tom. Okay, thanks.